Good morning, you guys. Good to see you again. And uh, in your bulletin, notice, if you haven't seen uh, this announcement from Katie, Katie Hall, she's in charge of our meals ministry, and she's, she would love for people to sign up so that we can take meals to people in need, and her contact info is, is in there. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Dan, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here. So thankful to see you guys with us this morning, and if you're new here, please take a sec just to fill out your connection card so we can... We can know you, and we're not going to stalk you. Uh, we're not going to uh, put you on some weird list. We, we just want to know who you are, because we're glad you're here. And whether you make Cedar Home your church home or not, we want to figure out how we can help you and serve you however we can. So we love you, and if you don't feel like doing that today, that's okay. But uh, when you do, please put that in uh, those, those boxes by the doors as, as you head out today. Um, yeah, and please come to the Taste of Swaziland event if you can. That's, that's going to be a fun time for us here at the, the end of the month, which Melissa did a great job announcing already. Uh, over the past month, we have, uh, we've been reading the Bible together to see how the very first Christians did life together about 2,000 years ago, right after Jesus rose from the dead and returned to heaven. And specifically, we've been focusing on this, this passage here in Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, which describes the first community of Christians living in Jerusalem. Uh, let me read this passage again for us. Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time we have to be together as your church family and as we read your word now. Holy Spirit, please teach us, teach our, our, our spirits, teach our souls, God. Um, teach our hearts. Uh, please bring us into alignment with yours. Please help us, God, to turn away from those things in our lives that are displeasing to you and help us to turn to you in faith. We know, God, that uh, you've appointed this text for this day for us, and so we trust you, and uh, we just pray that you would feed us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've worked our way through this passage, which this is our fifth week, We've asked ourselves some questions, and one of those questions has been, why is it hard for us Christians in 2018 to live life together the same way that these Christians lived about 2,000 years ago? And we talked about some of those challenges that make it difficult for us today, and, and we've also talked about how the gospel helps us navigate some of those challenges. And since we're wrapping up this section of Scripture today, I want to briefly talk about how we should read and apply the book of Acts to our lives. So this is kind of a bigger, bigger uh, picture question. <clears throat> when we read passages of Scripture like today's passage, what does God want us to do about it? 
right? Maybe God doesn't want us to do anything about it. Maybe God is just telling us what happened 2,000 years ago so that we can know the story of Christian history. Or did God include this passage in Acts because he wants to follow the examples of the first Christians? When is the Bible simply describing a historical event and when is the Bible prescribing or commanding us to imitate the people in the Bible? Uh, I think, yeah, I want to put this up there. It says a passage is descriptive if it is simply describing something that happened. A passage is prescriptive if it is specifically teaching that something should happen. Okay? So the Bible does both. It describes and it prescribes, and sometimes it does both in the same passage. Um, a few years ago, I was, I was talking to a couple of Mormon missionaries, came to my door, and I, one of the big things in the news that week had been how, on the Mormons, actually, and about how the practice of polygamy is growing again in the church, in their church. And I asked them about this. Why do you, I mean, what's the biblical basis for supporting polygamy, which is the belief that a man can and should have more than one wife? And they told me that in the Bible, there were lots of men in the Old Testament who had multiple wives, and so that means that God must be okay with it. And so these guys were saying that because the Bible describes something that happened in history, then that means that God commands us to do the same thing. But that's totally incorrect. That's an incorrect way to read and interpret and apply the Bible to your life. Um, the Bible tells us all sorts of evil things that people have done. And then, keep reading, the Bible will then show you how those evil behaviors destroyed the lives of those people and their communities. And so the command of Scripture is clear regarding this issue, that from the days of Adam and Eve to the days of Paul in the New Testament, which was a totally different culture, that transculturally, across cultures, the New Testament command is that God created marriage for one man and one woman. And so that brings us back to the same question. How do you know which things in Scripture God commands us to do and which things are simply a description of historical events? Well, there are a number of tools we can use to discern if the passage we're reading is a description or a prescription or both. And let me just tell you briefly about three of those. First, to determine if a passage is uh, descriptive or prescriptive, you have to consider the historical context, okay? In other words, you have to know the time period in history in which the passage took place that you're reading. Was it in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world? Was it after sin entered the world? Was it during the Old Testament time before Jesus came to earth? Was it during Jesus' life? Was it after Jesus' life? Is it describing an event that will happen in the future? Because the Bible includes all those things. So the timing of a certain story or command in the Bible shapes the way that we apply it to our lives. Second, to determine if a passage of the Bible is descriptive or prescriptive, you, you want to look at patterns of behavior and God's response to those patterns of behavior. So when people act a certain way over and over again in Scripture, does that lead to God blessing them? or to God cursing them. 
Uh, or are, are there patterns of behavior by God's people in the Bible that appear to be a helpful and worshipful way to live? What are the patterns we see? And then third, to determine if a passage of Scripture is descriptive or prescriptive, specifically in the New Testament, you have to ask whether what is happening is explicitly commanded somewhere else in the New Testament. Hear that? Is what I'm reading here commanded somewhere else in the New Testament? Uh, This website, gotquestions.org, says it this way. If a verse or passage is simply describing something with nothing said in the positive or negative about that something, then it is descriptive and should not be considered something we are commanded to do. It is only when Scripture specifically instructs or prescribes that New Testament believers do something that we are to take it as a command to obey. Now, this makes it really interesting for the passage at hand, because you'll notice I've been preaching Acts 2, 42 as prescriptive. However, there's no commands in Acts 2, 42, are there? So, what does that mean? Does that mean we shouldn't do all these things today? Or that we don't need to do all these things today? Well, since there's no command for us in Acts 2.42, we have to ask this then. Does the New Testament command us anywhere else to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread together and to the prayers? Yes. Yes, it does. Okay. Regarding devotion to the apostles' teaching, let me just fly through Bible's passages. We'll put them on the screen. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Okay, regarding devotion, devoting ourselves to the fellowship, uh, or to the sharing of life together, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Regarding uh, devoting ourselves to the breaking of bread together, which likely includes both showing hospitality to one another and also taking the Lord's Supper together, Romans 15 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Uh, Romans 12, 13, I'm going to hop through three real quick, not on the screen. Romans 12, 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hebrews 13 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And then about the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 25, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's a command. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
And then regarding our devotion to the prayers, Romans 15.30 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. 2 Corinthians 1.11 says, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. So, because the actions of the church in Acts 2.42 are commanded elsewhere in the New Testament, then we should read Acts 2.42 as both descriptive of something that was happening, but also as prescriptive of something we should imitate. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, that does not mean that all of Acts chapter 2 is both descriptive and prescriptive. And it doesn't mean that everything that happens in Acts is prescriptive for us. Uh, if you think about Acts, because the Bible is made of different genres of literature, different types of literature, Acts is basically a historical narrative. It's, it's a history account of what happened in the early church. Uh, it largely is describing, it's largely descriptive of historical events. But also within Acts, we can identify many actions and behavior that God, God tells us to do elsewhere in the New Testament. The other thing I want to say is this. If a passage is not prescriptive for us, right, if we're reading something and there's not a command in there telling us to do something, does that passage still have meaning for us? Can we apply that passage to our lives in some way? Yeah, we can. But that application won't necessarily mean literally imitating what the text is describing. Okay. So the reason I'm taking time to talk about this um, between the difference between descriptive and prescriptive passages is because what we want to do is correctly interpret and apply the Bible to our lives. And this is going to help us do that. Uh, so this morning, what I want to do now as we get into the passage is I want to do an overview of everything that we see happening here among the first Christians in Acts 2, 42 to 47. And believe it or not, there's actually, <laughs> there's a lot of things in these verses we haven't touched yet. Uh, some of these things are descriptive, some of these are prescriptive, and some are both. And essentially, this chunk of scripture is a picture of what true fellowship among Christians has looked like in the past, and it's a picture of what it can look like. Um, it describes Christians sharing a common life together with a shared devotion to Jesus and to his gospel. That's what this is a picture of. Verse 42, let's take these one at a time, okay? Let's just go right through the passage. Verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, okay? The core message of the apostles' teaching is that God saves sinners, I like it. That's how J.I. Packer, he said, if you want the whole Bible, in three words, that's it. God saves sinners. Uh, that is the message of the gospel. And that message has not changed in 2,000 years. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's the message of the gospel. So what this means is the apostles did not list all the good things we must do to save ourselves from hell. That's not what you find in the New Testament. The apostles taught what Jesus taught, that your good works, your good life in your eyes 
actually can't save you from hell. And they can't save you from the wrath of God. Only God can save you from his wrath. Only God can save you from the punishment of your sin, which is hell. And so Jesus, this is the message of the gospel, Jesus did all the good works for you when he lived a perfect life on earth, okay? So it's not about what you do, it's about what Jesus did. And you, the message of the gospel is that you can receive the credit for doing what Jesus did if you trust in Jesus for eternal life. And so Jesus died on the cross as a punishment for your sin, to suffer the punishment you and I deserve for all the ways we disobey God. And at the same time, he rose from the dead to declare not guilty in God's sight everyone who trusts in Jesus. Jesus gives his righteousness to his people and he puts upon himself their sin and puts it to death. That's the heart of the message of the gospel. Did I say that right? Sometimes my mind gets going too fast. I know a lot of times I'm, I say things that don't make sense. And so you have to just kind of figure out, what, oh, he meant this word, okay? But I try to be clear when it comes to the gospel. Um, what drove God to do this? Well, we know that God deserves glory. And we know that he did this for the glory of his own name. But scripture is also really clear that at the same time, he did this because he loves us. And so Jesus says, Turn away from your sin and turn to me in faith, and I will save you. That's, that's the core message of Jesus, and that's the core message of the apostles. Um, verse 42 says that these Christians devoted themselves to the fellowship. So they were devoted to a common life together, sharing a common life together. And, and it says here they saw each other very frequently. Um, in verse 46, it says they saw each other every day. And, you know, even though we might not be together every day in our, in our year, 2018, we do have many tools to stay in each other's lives regularly so that we can continue to help and encourage one another. We can meet for coffee. We can grab lunch together. We can be together on Sundays and in midweek community groups. We can... You can call each other on the phone, you can text each other, email each other, write notes to each other, serve in our schools together, work on outreach events together, right? Uh, The point is, just like the Christians did though in Jerusalem, we do want to imitate them on this. We want to devote ourselves to living life together as a church family, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. Verse 42 says that the first Christians devoted themselves to breaking bread together, which, which, like we said, it probably means they shared meals together and also took the Lord's Supper together at the conclusion of the meal. And so as our, uh, as our church body, we, we take the Lord's Supper together on the first Sunday of the month, which we plan to do here at the end of the sermon. And when we come together to share meals, we want to imitate the first Christians here by having glad and generous hearts. We want to be thankful for the food in front of us, right? That's why we pray, to thank God and not take it for granted that we have food in front of us. And when we share a meal with others, we want to be thankful for whatever food we have. This is one area where I think we need to, I need to grow, I'll say, I can't put it on you, but I think we need to grow in hospitality is, I think sometimes, we get 
uh, we, we're hesitant to showing hospitality to others if we can't always put on our best face to others, right? If the, if the living room is dirty, I can't have people over. And I'm like, I got three kids, okay? And my wife and I do a good job. I'm just telling you, five minutes after that living room is clean, I mean, it's dirty. And so we can't let that stop us from being real with one another and just showing hospitality to each other. Um, and we, we're thankful for whatever food God gives to us. We give thanks for that. And at the same time, verse 42 talks about having generous hearts. Hey, and I'm not just going to blame it on the kids, okay? I can make a mess of the living room as anybody else. Let's, let's be clear about that. Um, we want to have generous hearts, which means that we, we lavishly serve others because we're motivated by love. We're not motivated by impressing people. That's what this word generous means. It means we want to, I want to do this just because I love you, not because I'm trying to earn good works or for any other reason than that I love you. That's what it means to, to do this with generous hearts. Somebody in our church told me this week that they plan to intentionally show hospitality to newer people in our church family by inviting them to join them for a meal with people from their community group once a month after church on Sunday. I'm like, that's a great way to put this into practice. It's a great way to, to, to live this out, and it's a doable thing. It's once a month. They're going to do this and get to know new people. I think that's awesome. Verse 42 says that the first Christians devoted themselves to the prayers. So prayer was a priority among the first Christians. It wasn't something they just did when they didn't have anything else to do. Uh, they likely prayed the Lord's Prayer together. Uh, they prayed and sang spiritual songs together. And, and we know they met together just to pray spontaneously with one another. I was thinking about this. When was the last time you called up a brother or sister in Christ, or a few of them, and just said, when can we find an hour just to pray together? Wow, I was thinking about that. I was like, we're really good at coffee, and, and that's okay too. We should pray when we get coffee and stuff. But I was like, you know, there's nothing wrong with just saying, let's carve out an hour just to get together and pray. That's, that's a cool idea. I would love, and I better put that into practice since I'm the one who brought it up. But uh, um, so if you get a call, that's what's going down, okay? Um, so, so anyways, I'll tell you this. I was thinking this past week that this prayer gathering that we had Tuesday night, it was one of the highlights of my time at Cedar Homes since 2007. Like, that's not an exaggeration. It's not just because the food was great, although it was. Uh, it was, I was so encouraged to see intergenerational, young people and old people there, new people, longtime members there. We ate dinner together, got to know each other better, and then afterwards we filled that chapel with 80 to 90 people um, in prayer. And we prayed for our church together and our community and our world. And, and one of my favorite parts of that night, because we wrestled with what do we do with the kids, right? Um, do you just, you know, send them next door or what? But we did child care up to age four. But one of the favorite things I heard was about this group of young people. There were f people from four years old through middle school in this group. And they sat together without adults and they prayed together the whole time. <laughs> they took it seriously and they enjoyed it. That was the other thing. I couldn't believe it. They're like, that was fun. I'm like, Wow, praise God. We had four-year-olds praying, seriously, 
just as seriously as 84-year-olds. It was so cool. What a blessing it was to be part of that. It, it is a blessing to pray alongside brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and it, it was also fun afterwards to hear stories of how God was working through prayer and bringing uh, two people's minds the exact same situations to pray about. Like I heard several, uh, like one person was like, this came to my mind, but right before I could pray for it, someone else said it. Um, that happened a few times. That's exciting. And so we want to keep doing this. Let's keep praying together as a church, right? Verse 43 says that awe came upon every soul. In other words, the Christians, and I imagine the non-Christian observers, looked around at what God was doing here in Acts 2.42 through 47, and they said, this is awesome. That's where that word awesome comes from, awe. This is awesome. God is awesome. And you guys, God is still doing awesome things among us today. We just have to keep our eyes out for them. And, and we have to be careful, intentional, not to let ourselves become numb to what God is actually doing in our lives. You guys, God is making people born again in our midst through faith in Jesus. Not just here on Sundays, but through your gospel witness during the week. People are being baptized here. People are publicly confessing their faith in Jesus here. Thankful, we've had two in the past month here at Cedar Home. Uh, Christians are being encouraged to persevere in their struggles. The Holy Spirit is breaking people free from their bondage to wrong ways of thinking and acting. Husbands and wives are fighting for their marriages here for the glory of God. The Holy Spirit is rising up new leaders here to help shepherd the family here. We, we got lots of new people coming on Sunday mornings and um, worshiping with us. We've got, we have a van ministry going now. I don't know if you knew that, but on Sunday mornings, we're, we're picking up children and families and bringing them here. Children are hearing the gospel every week in junior church and they're having fun doing it. We have so many kids upstairs next door that we've run out of room and we're going to have to tear a wall down so that we can keep them all in one space. Isn't that awesome? That's a great problem. Now it costs $1,500 to do that. If that's something you're passionate about and you want to give to that, please do. But I'm like, that is an awesome problem to have. That is a great problem to have. Teenagers are growing in Christ, and we have a volunteer team there doing a great job mentoring teenagers. We're learning as a church family how to pray together. I'm hearing about people who are in conflict with one another, and they're going to each other and talking it out for the glory of God. That's huge. Um, grieving families are believing the gospel and trusting Jesus in the midst of their grief. God is answering prayers for sick people to get better. And God is getting glory through people who aren't getting better because they're trusting in Jesus, whether in sickness or in health, whether in life or in death. It's better to have Christ than anything. That's what they're believing. Wow. The gospel is being preached and taught here on Sundays throughout the week in many different venues. We've got those women's Bible studies I just saw, which are, look great. God is shining his light into the hearts of men and women. These are awesome things. And so let's be like the first Christians and intentionally be in awe of this, of what God is doing here. Let's never take the work of God for granted among us, right? Let's be thankful for it.
Verse 43 says that uh, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God still does miracles today. And he also works in our lives without miracles that we can see. Miracles are a blessing from God, but hear me closely, they cannot be the barometer we use to determine whether God is at work in our midst. Because both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, there are plenty of examples even of miracles that actually happened in their midst, but they weren't of God. They weren't honoring to God. So miracles are wonderful. And at the same time, Jesus says there's something much more wonderful. We read in the Gospel of Luke that the, the disciples were amazed at how they could cast out demons out of people in the name of Jesus. And Jesus told them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus says we should rejoice when God makes people born again. We shouldn't become obsessed with or surprised by whatever tools God may use to cause people to believe his gospel. And here in verse 43, we want to look at this in context. God was doing signs and wonders specifically through the apostles to validate their unique authority and to grow the kingdom in that way. That's what the message of Acts is. That, and and their, their uh, signs that they did, if you, we're going to see this as we go through Acts, are almost always accompanied by the preaching of the gospel. It's, it's a message that accompanies the works. And so Christians today, I think we can, we can wrongly make too big a deal out of miracles, and at the same time we can make too little a deal out of miracles. I believe the Holy Spirit is still alive. He still can do miracles, but just because we have the Holy Spirit in us at the same time doesn't mean we can order him around and force him to make miracles happen. In John 3, Jesus describes a spirit as, he's like the wind. He blows wind and how he wants. We don't control him. We submit to him and trust that he's sovereign and he's good and he wants good for us and that he does miracles when and where he wants to. Verse 44 says that all who believed were together and had all things in common. And again, the idea here is, is sharing life together, which included sharing their possessions with each other. And... You know, when we believe and begin to understand that everything that we have, everything that we own is, is not really ours, but it's a gift to us from God, um, when we believe that everything we can see is temporary, I read that verse this week in 2 Corinthians, everything you can see with your eyes is transient. Everything, including one another. The soul inside of you is not transient, but your body is. Everything you can see with your eyes is transient. When you begin to believe that, when we believe that we can love God and love others by sharing with them what God has given to us, it changes the way that we use material things and the way that we acquire material things. And one really helpful question for us to ask, I was just thinking to, to make this applicable for us, is how do we share our stuff in a way that is different than the way that non-Christians share their stuff? Or, or how do we share our things with one another in a way that is glorifying to God? 
I think those are some good questions to wrestle with before you start lending out all your things to everybody. Because what, think about this, what happens in a real practical way when you share your stuff with others? Things sometimes get broken, right? Things don't always get returned. And so we can't allow that reality to stop us from sharing with one another, but I think it's helpful if we think through ahead of time, what's our plan if, if the thing that we're sharing does get broken or does go missing? Is our plan to pay the repairs for that thing? Is, it, is our plan to pay for the replacement of that thing? Do we expect the other person to pay for, for the replacement or the repair of that thing? Um, if you just, I think if we think through those things a little bit and clearly communicate with one another as we share, it, it will help. Uh, it helps us discern how to share what we have. Um, for instance, let's just say you have a nice truck and you may not feel comfortable lending it to your friend who needs help moving something, but maybe you could drive the truck to help him move. Or maybe if, if that doesn't work out for whatever reason, you could help your friend think through solutions for how can you hook this guy up with a truck so that he can get help. That describes me because I don't have a truck. <laughs> okay. Someday. Someday, maybe. <clears throat> I think thinking through how we share with one another will, will help us to avoid excessive conflicts and divisions when accidents happen. And ultimately, we want God to be glorified in the way that we share with one another. Verse 45 says that the first Christians were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so Christians were not only sharing their belongings with one another, but it says they were selling them. They were selling their possessions in order to, so for the purpose of giving their money to the poor Christians around them. And this is an example of generous sacrificial giving, right? This is not merely what they're describing. This is not merely looking in your pockets for spare change to help somebody out. This is intentionally selling something that you own in order to help other believers in need. Have you ever done that? Next time you have a garage sale or, or you sell something on Craigslist or buy, sell, swap, consider giving the proceeds to our, our, our deacon's fund, our sunshine's fund, which we collect Actually, it is the first Sunday of the month, but it's, it's the first Sunday of every month that the deacons distribute to our church body and to the community to help people in need. And just to be clear about this, as Christians, we want to help all people, regardless of their religion, race, or background. But the New Testament is really clear on this, that we have a special obligation to take care of one another in our church family, because we are family and family takes care of one another. Verse 46 says that the first Christians were attending the temple together, and again, they were breaking bread in their homes, it says, with glad and generous hearts. And so these, these first Christians primarily came from a Jewish background, right? They're in Jerusalem. And, and they rightly understood Jesus to be the fulfillment of their Jewish faith. Jesus was the Messiah. He was their Messiah. And so they, they had no problem at that point continuing to attend the temple together to hear God's word and to worship 
God. And in a similar way, we, we Christians gather as a church family every Sunday to hear God's word and to worship him. And, and for many of us, just like in this passage, sharing a meal with others after the church service, it is a natural way to get to know other Christians and to continue to worship the Lord. Okay, verse 47, it says that the Christians were praising God together. So praise was the response. Praise was the way they responded to the awesome things that God was doing in their midst. They didn't just learn new things about Jesus and say, oh, wow, what's for lunch? That wasn't the response, okay? It wasn't a division. It was like, oh, wow, what do you do with that? Oh, wow. You say, oh, wow, Jesus is awesome. Oh, wow, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. So they were praising God with their words and in their teaching. And, and it says they sang hymns and spiritual songs together. And, and, and so just like the first Christians, we want to learn to praise God with our words and with our thoughts and with our songs, whether, um, um, whether we're at church on Sunday or whether we're you know, in a Bible study or whether we're in a community group, whether we're with our families, whether we're in our car by ourselves. God gives much grace to us, and we respond by praising him, right? And verse 47 also says that these first Christians had favor with all the people. And uh, Jesus said that the, the world will know we are Christians by our love for one another. And the message of the love of God in Jesus Christ and the effect of God's love demonstrated through selfless Christians in this passage, truly impacted non-Christians who were watching. They looked at this community of Christians and they're like, wow. And for a certain amount of time, they, they even had favor with all the people. Now, we know that that didn't last very long, uh, if you just keep reading Acts. But the reason for that is because this world um, and the powers of darkness in this world hate the light of Jesus. That's what Jesus says. Uh, and so just as this world worked hard to extinguish the light of Jesus, which he proved through his resurrection that they couldn't do, so also the world works hard to extinguish the light of Jesus inside us today, inside the church today. But the world will not succeed at extinguishing Jesus in us either because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus has already won. Verse 47 says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so uh, the fact that this church of, of 3,000 plus believers was continuing to grow numerically every day, it tells us a few things. First of all, this is, is describing the addition of actual born-again Christians, uh, not merely people who wanted to be part of the excitement. So in addition to the 3,000 plus people who were being saved, there were likely many other onlookers too. And second, we read here that the one who makes people saved is the Lord. Okay? So the reason why people were responding to the gospel in faith is because the Lord was at work. He was granting repentance and faith to people. He was the one making them born again spiritually. And then third, the fact that the Lord was saving people every day here tells us that Christians were sharing the gospel of Jesus with non-Christians, right? The gospel was being proclaimed, 
And it was taught likely through the combination of the apostles preaching and teaching, as well as through the conversations that Christians were having with one another and with non-Christians. The Lord saves sinners when they hear the gospel and believe the gospel. And the same is true today. People cannot believe the gospel of Jesus if they do not hear the gospel of Jesus. Inside your bulletin, there should be an insert. I won't make you write anything down today. Um, but it, it should be an insert that it's, I think it's a, it has the word gospel at the top. This is something that we give to our families to help teach the gospel message to children. And it's really basic because the gospel is really basic. And I would just say, if you don't know or if you feel uncomfortable with sharing the gospel with others, keep this insert as an aid and put it somewhere where on your refrigerator or somewhere else you'll see it because this will help you. This will help you see what are the core components of the gospel message. It's, it's real simple, and it's all about Jesus. But this is a tool that will help you share your faith. And we pray that God would give all of us more opportunities to share the gospel with others in a heartfelt way, and that we would have the eyes to see those opportunities around us and the courage to speak the gospel of Jesus with truth and with love. So Acts 2, 42 to 47 is, is not just a description of what the Christian church was. It's also a prescription of what the church can be and should be. And at Cedar Home, we have a church purpose statement. It's on the front of your bulletin. And we have this purpose statement to keep this vision before us, to prioritize what we do as a church and to guide us in the direction we want to go. It says Cedar Home Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered worship, community, service, and multiplication. And this purpose statement both describes what we see in today's passage and it prescribes our purpose and direction for us. I want to conclude by reading part of a letter that a man wrote to the Roman Emperor Hadrian in the year 125 A.D., This man is describing for the emperor the unusual way that Christians live together in community. And the language is a little antiquated, so you have to pay attention. This is what he's writing to the emperor. If one or other of them have bondmen and bondwomen or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah... 
all of them anxiously minister to his necessity, and if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Isn't that awesome? What a picture of what the church has been in the past. Let's continue to pursue God's vision for what our church can be in 2018. Um, I want to ask the communion servers to come forward now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. Please take a moment um, to examine your heart, to confess sin to God, to thank Him for salvation in Jesus Christ. Let me open us in prayer. Dear Lord, we, we thank you for this word today, and as we prepare to take communion, we ask that you would help us examine our hearts. In Jesus' name.